Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind, Internet Law and Policy Foundry's podcast on tech policy. I'm Rima Musa, a fellow at the Foundry, and today we have our final fellow highlight of 2022, end of season three of the podcast, which is a conversation with Nathan Reitinger. But before we get into that conversation, I'm here with Foundry fellow Lama Muhammad to give you the lowdown on the big headlines in tech policy this week. Hi, everyone. Always so happy to be here. Before we get into it, just a disclaimer that the opinions and thoughts discussed on this new segment do not reflect the opinions of our employers and other institutions and organizations that we are affiliated with. So Rima, let's get into it. What's on top of mind for you this week? So there's some big news with the world of international data transfers and international privacy. So on December 13th, the European Commission published a draft adequacy decision on the EU-US data privacy framework. So this framework is the proposed successor to the EU-US privacy shield framework that was struck down two years ago by the European Court of Justice in the Schrems II case, which is a very famous case in the privacy field. If you're not familiar with it, I definitely recommend checking out some blog posts on it because it is fascinating. So the purpose of this framework is to permit the transfer of data to U.S. companies so long as they certify to the framework. And this is a big deal in the compliance world since GDPR and Schrems 1 originally raised obstacles for the flow of personal data internationally. So the draft adequacy decision is a dense one. It's 134 pages. But according to a recent blog post from members of Goodwin Proctor, which is a big law firm, their data privacy and cybersecurity team, and we'll link the article in the show notes, it does three key things. One, it sets out the framework principles that companies will need to adhere to if they want to rely on it. Two, it provides supporting materials from U.S. officials that explain how U.S. laws, including the new executive order, protect EU personal data. And three, it analyzes the sufficiency of those safeguards and the framework principles against EU data protection standards. Their blog post also mentions two big takeaways, which I will paraphrase. The framework principles remain almost unchanged from previous Privacy Shield principles, and the European Commission indicates with this draft adequacy decision that they think that Biden's executive order, which addressed government intelligence and access concerns, which this framework is based on, that that executive order sufficiently addresses the gaps that led to the original striking down of Privacy Shield. So we'll be watching what goes down in the new year, but definitely an interesting development. Our next top headline to discuss for this week is the recent Epic Games $520 million fine by the Federal Trade Commission. Epic Games agreed to settle allegations that its Fortnite game violated children's privacy protection laws, claiming that dark patterns, which are user interfaces that are carefully designed to trick users, such as children, into doing things like buying in-game items. 
The first $275 million of the fine relates to a violation of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule, with the FTC alleging that Epic Games collected Fortnite data from children under the age of 13 without their consent, including a potential design flaw. The gaming company exposed children to bullying, threats, and harassment through the switching between voice and text chat in games by default. The new $245 million fine concerns the FTC alleging that Epic Games had a deceptive payment setup, invoking children psychologically into buying in-game items. Following this, we see a lot of children's privacy advocates congratulating the FTC for its lawsuit. The game's quote-unquote loot boxes may have the ability to target children in a gambling-like style that encourages children to make these purchases. Many people are calling on Epic Games to make it harder to purchase in-game items. It will certainly be very interesting to see what kind of precedent this lawsuit sets for the rest of the gaming industry, especially with the other side of this argument potentially being that the behavior of children and their in-game settings is on the parents' responsibility. And that concludes it for our new segment this week. Thanks, Lama. Lots of privacy news this week, which segues pretty well into our conversation today with Nathan on his career at the intersection of privacy tech and privacy law. So we'll get into it now. Enjoy this episode and see you next time. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the Tech Policy Grind. Hi, Rima. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just jumping right into it, you have a fascinating background. You are both a lawyer and a computer scientist. Which passion came first or did they emerge together? So that's an interesting question. I think that the law aspect definitely came first. Um, in my undergrad, like I, I knew that I wanted to go to law school for a while. And I knew that, so I was um, going to the Peace Corps. I was in Kenya for a couple of years. And then I knew I wanted to come back from that and go to law school. And um, so that, that's always kind of been a trajectory of mine. But I think something that I didn't really realize that law school would do, and which it did, is it, it gave me confidence to know that, um, you know, there's a lot of things out there. And if I was interested in something, I could just teach myself. Like a lot of law school is just like you alone trying to teach yourself a concept that seems very difficult at first, but then once you understand it, it seems relatively easy. And so um, I was actually pretty surprised that law school gave me the confidence to say, okay, if I wanted to you know, do uh, computer science, something I've always been interested in, I actually can do that. Like, you know, I... I may not uh, love like reading mathematical proofs and I might prefer to go like read a legal case, but that doesn't mean it's, it's something that I should, you know, not pursue if I'm passionate about it. Um, and so uh, that was, you know, something that happened uh, because of law school and, you know, I'm thankful for that. And I think I'm here where I am today, but, you know, because of that um, experience. That's awesome. So what got you initially started into the field of tech law and policy? Um, I think that, so I would probably um, step back. And so because I had always wanted to um, go to law school and I think I just like, I really enjoy 
the law and thinking like a lawyer and arguing like a lawyer. I think I, I resonate a lot with um, all of that and the cultural that, culture that's associated with that. Um, and so like when I went to law school, I was thinking, okay, I want to be a good attorney. I want to like learn law things and, and do law things. But then after uh, law school, right before I got into, uh, started getting into computer science, um, you know, I knew that, so I guess I, like I knew when I did the computer science thing that I'm currently doing right now, I knew that I wanted to like pair it with my legal background. That was always a, a very intentional thing. Um, but what got me, I think, to like take that plunge because I actually did not have any uh, like formal CS or math background or anything like that was I remember we were in um, Michigan, my wife and I, who I met in the Peace Corps, uh, we were in Michigan and she was looking at, she's in uh, medical school and I'm in law school and she was looking at uh, residency programs to do some, you know, her medical training. And uh, she was looking at all these, like, you know, some big cities, some small places. And I was like pushing really hard to get her to go to like uh, a place like New York or even Pittsburgh or something like somewhere that I could very easily find myself in a law firm or a clerkship or something like that. Um, and she really enjoyed her time. She interviewed at Dartmouth uh, and she like loved it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do, uh, you know, in, in like New Hampshire, um, like I, I enjoy appellate law. Like they, you know, don't even have an intermediate court system there. Like they go right to the Supreme court. And so I was thinking like, uh, what am I going to do? And, um, that was, I think a point where I said, okay, I know that I'm passionate about computer science and I know I'm passionate uh, about law. And if I want to take this like period as an opportunity to really pursue uh, another discipline like computer science, that that's something I could do. Um, and so that was the the point where I decided to kind of take take this passion and something I had been like, you know, toying with and uh, like kind of, you know, learning computer science things here and there kind of in a, a side project type of way. Um, it was then that I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to push on this and, and I'm going to do like, I think the first thing I, well, I started with MOOCs, but, um, I, uh, I thought, okay, I, I need to like have a real, uh, computer science thing here. I should do a master's of science. And so that's what I started, um, at Columbia, right. When we moved, uh, to Dartmouth, um, for her to start her residency program. So, uh, yeah. So I want to pull on that thread that you mentioned of your time in the Peace Corps. I would love to hear about what you learned from that experience and, you know, if it informs your your current work. Yeah, I th that's um, I think that the the biggest takeaway probably for me from the Peace Corps was that like, I had all these ideas going into it. And I think if you talk to a lot of returned Peace Corps volunteers, they would say something similar where like, you think you're going in to do something specific or you're, you know, I like my village um, in Kenya had like a drought problem, like a lot of villages do um, there. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to help them build like a new water system and they're going to be able to have fresh, clean water this way. And and all this. And then like when you get there, you, you know, you start talking to people um, and you try and figure out what they actually want. And if the things that you want aren't the things that they want, then no matter what you do, it's going to end when you leave. And so um, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me was that like the 
you need to learn what's actually needed and where you are and what you're doing rather than just doing whatever you think it is that like you want to do. Um, so the water project, like I had thought I was going to do a water project. I never actually did. Um, what I ended up doing instead was teaching computer skills because a lot of people wanted um, to learn computers and learn how to uh, interact with computers so that they could get jobs later on. And since that was something that I knew, I could very easily teach them that. So um, I think that that's kind of a, a starting point, like, you know, figuring out what the takeaway is and what people actually want before you start a project rather than just like jumping in with things, I think is is one of the biggest takeaways I had. Yeah, that really hits on, I think, the point of collaborative problem solving and using communication as a tool to bridge the gap between different communities, people with different backgrounds, different perspectives, uh, in order to solve these sort of collective problems. And so that sort of reminds me of this gap that we see between technologists and engineers and more technical uh, literate folks and policy professionals and attorneys. And your position as someone who's versed both in the technical side um, and the legal side sort of positions you interestingly to potentially bridge that gap. So I'm curious as to what your perspective is on what's sort of the current state of uh, communication between technologists and policy and law professionals, and how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And I, you know, I, I think that there are, and I've seen this like over time, you, you know, you, I meet computer scientists who are interested in legal things and they're, you know, they say, oh, I have this, this really interesting um, you know, computer science thing I'm doing that affects the law. And here's how, you know, here's how we can use these together. And you also, you meet lawyers who are like, wow, this, this whole computer science thing, this is interesting. There's this interesting new tool out there. Like we can think about the law this way, or we can, you know, do this with it. Um, and it's, I think that these, the, um, the thing that is needed is like a space for these, that type of interdisciplinary work to come together and to not, um, I think be uh, kind of pushed aside. So like if you go and you want to, so I'm in a PhD program right now and so I'm publishing. And when you go to publish in computer science, like you are talking about conferences, not journals like you would in the law. And there are very specific um, and I would say somewhat inflexible way of, um, of like publishing in that, uh, in that vein. Like you have to, you have to have papers that are of a, very, of a very specific type and they do very specific things. Um, and there's not a lot of flexibility for them to branch out of that. And so, um, you know, if you flip that and you look at the legal side, I actually think you find something similar. Like we have these, these places where we push the bounds of research and, and people say like, you know, here's, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's how we should think about this in, in a different way. Um, and so, the, and those end up in law journals and law journals in, in the same respect are somewhat inflexible in the way that they expect certain things of a 
you know, of a paper, right? Like blue book would be maybe the simplest. Like, and if you ask a, a, a computer scientist what the blue book is, like they're like, I, I don't know, Kelly blue book maybe is what they would think of. Um, and like, because these two, you know, disciplines are speaking such different language languages, we, I think, miss out on this collaboration in between in terms of like having spaces for inter- interdisciplinary work that maybe doesn't conform to the strict standards of the top, you know, conference or venue or journal of that field, but is still a valuable contribution to, you know, knowledge in general and to pushing like the way that we think about how the law interacts with computer science and the way computer science interacts with the law. And so like, I think there are some places that exist that offer this bridge. Um, the Privacy Law Scholars Conference is one of them where we have a, a very nice mix of um, disciplines, but I think there's probably uh, room for more because, uh, it, you know, it just, it seems like, yeah, like I, I think that there, um, there's just, there's something to be had about work that doesn't fit the mold, but is still a valuable contribution. Um, so, yeah. A great perspective. And I love uh, your sort of analysis of the sort of structural differences and similarities, I guess, between uh, the legal and computer science fields in the academia context uh, sort of impacts this this communication gap. So I think that's that's a really interesting insight for potentially the future of collaboration between more technical and legal fields. So I want to get into your current research. So on your website, you mention that you conduct uh, both legal research and sort of maintain that actively. but also you're currently undertaking a computer science uh, PhD and publishing and and doing research in that. What research are you working on right now? Yeah, I think that, so my favorite research is, is that is, is a research topic that allows me to wear both hats as much as possible. Um, And I think that, depending on the project, there's, you know, different aspects of it that allow me uh, to do that. So one of them on the legal side that um, I've been researching and it's, um, I think it's in the publishing cycle right now is about differential privacy. And that like, I think that it's an interesting paper because it tries to tackle differential privacy. Differential privacy is a it's a, a way of thinking about the algorithms um, that sanitize data. So like data release and protecting data, like HIPAA confidentiality type stuff. Um, so it, it's an interesting area because differential privacy is very difficult to um, understand, I think. And I think a lot of uh, lawyers would have, um, you know, have some difficulty understanding it because at its uh, foundation, is really a mathematical understanding of what's happening with, you know, it works on algorithms. And so it's really math-based to its core. And so that project was um, one where I tried to say, okay, if you would like to learn about differential privacy, here's a way, like here's a roadmap to thinking about it 
to where you may not be able to have uh, you know, a technical mathematical background, but that doesn't mean you can't reason about what differential privacy does. Um, and in terms of these like tools coming up in like in uh, actual like legal problems, like as we saw with the, the census case um, from earlier this year, like it, it does happen. And so we need to be able to think about these things that um, may be difficult, but uh, there is a way to, to think about them. Um, and that paper also tries to provide, it provides a, a test that allows you to um, kind of uh, extrapolate on what you can learn from differential privacy to apply to a variety of, of statutes. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And that was a fun, like, you know, teaching or like, how can we take a uh, CS concept and teach it in a legal lens, um, but definitely on the legal side. And then on the computer science side, I'm, I'm doing a couple projects. I think one of them um, most recently, which was uh, a lot of fun, looks at the ability to uh, deny online. So a lot of popular text messaging applications today, like if you've ever heard of Signal, you probably have heard of WhatsApp. They use a um, they use a, a cryptographic protocol underneath the, the messaging system that one aspect of it allows you or is supposed to allow you to be able to deny having said something. You know whether you maybe you said it, maybe you didn't, but um, you're supposed to have the freedom to say no, I didn't say that. And the you know the mathematical like protocol that they're using. To, that makes that system work is supposed to provide you with that ability, the, the ability to you know, successfully deny having said something. And so that paper really uh, attacks that proposition and says, is this actually true? Do, do people who don't understand the mathematical underpinnings of, of this technique, like do they get the same things from it that maybe a cryptographer does? Are they really understanding this to be actual deniability or are they looking for something else like are they reasoning different um and it's you know not a shocker that uh normal people are not reasoning like cryptographers um but that paper like looks into that area and says what would it take for a normal person to believe that a message that was you know supposedly sent by someone may may or may not have actually been sent by that by that person um, and so that was, uh, that was a fun project, um, that kind of looked at a, a very different, different area. Um, but one that, uh, I thought was also interesting. So something interesting about both legal and, you know, sort of hard tech computer science, uh, engineering disciplines is I think there's sort of this perception of inaccessibility uh, from the general public is that these are uh, complex fields, subjects uh, that, you know, for the average person is just a little over their head. But something I'm hearing in your description of your work is sort of this drive towards accessibility and translating some of these uh, subjects into sort of everyday language and allowing, you know, a lay person to be able to understand, you know, what's going on in privacy with these, uh, you know, complex issues that you're that you're taking a look at. So, 
To what extent do you feel that that accessibility informs your your work and your drive to innovate and and research these fields? Yeah, I think that accessibility can be it it surely is underlying a lot of the types of projects that I find interesting and I think it's probably more of a personal approach to these problems that I have that I then try and pass off. Like the the paper that looks at differential privacy, when I did not, you know, when I first started researching it, I had no idea what differential privacy was. And it took me, you know, a long time and probably uh, um, not just a legal perspective, but a computer science perspective, and but not also not just a computer science perspective, also a legal perspective to really understand how that um, you know that that type of concept was was working and how it could work in a real world applicability sense and so I think there's a lot of room for these um, these uh, kind of like gaps in translation that exist out there because all of all of these things if you you know if you boil them down they're actually fairly simple it's just that they get complicated and there's you know there's a lot of moving parts going on but um, at its bottom, these you know these things should be relatively simple. Um, just like if you if you have a very complex brief and you're trying to you know communicate something, like if it comes across more simply, it's 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 better for everyone to read and and be able to understand. And so, I think that's probably something that I took from you know my legal training and try and apply in um, all of the the projects that I do in computer science is just being able to take these things that uh, seem difficult and complex and break them down to where they're actually not that difficult and complex. And I think that has benefits uh, for accessibility, like you noted. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about you. So what are you looking forward to right now? Do you have any uh, exciting sort of opportunities or career plans on the horizon or anything, you know, not career related that you're, that you're excited about at the moment. The position I'm at in my career right now, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, almost a fourth year PhD student. So I'm still researching. I still have more papers than I need to put out before I'll figure out what I have to do next. But I think that I'm, Looking forward to I, like over the past several years, we've seen how this um, probably the, like the concept of privacy, uh, in, at least in terms of like how it's statutorily understood and how we're viewing it interact with the world, um, I think has really come up. And, uh, you know, example of that would be like the GDPR. Um, and so I, I'm looking forward to a time where this is sort of more standard. Like we, you know, we don't have a GDPR right now. We have several states that are enacting privacy laws. Um, but I think that it'll be it'll be really interesting to see where we go with privacy um, in terms of how it's statutorily understood from like a GDPR type perspective. Um, and I think there will be a lot of very interesting problems to solve there. And I think that'll be a, a place that will just like to be able to elevate the you know privacy, I think, of ordinary citizens uh, to a place where um, it's just it's a lot better, I think, is a is a, a place I'm looking forward to and, you know, research that I'm looking forward to connecting. Yeah, absolutely. It's such 
an interesting time for the field of privacy in sort of the traction it's been getting within, you know, the legal community in particular, but I think also just around the world uh, in a, in a broader context, it feels like privacy is a big part of the discussion, even, you know, among friends, among colleagues, among family, uh, among society. It's, it's a fascinating um, time to be thinking about the problems that uh, that are connected to privacy as we navigate our increasingly digital world. So what are you reading or listening to right now? <laughs> to, to be honest, the last book I read was The Grumpy Monkey. <laughs> and uh, that's my toddler's favorite book. Um, it's about a little monkey who says that he wants to get his grumps out. And so he has his friends do annoying things so that he can be grumpy so that once he gets all his grumps out, he's happy. And uh, it speaks to the type of free time that I don't really have these days with uh, our toddler who is almost two and a half years old now. And so I would say that even considering the next book I read, I'm sure it will, I, you know, I don't have the type of free time that I used to, so it'll probably be another children's book. Um, yeah. Well, do you have any advice for someone who is interested in perhaps the field of tech law, or they have this sort of interdisciplinary background or interest in both the law and uh, a more hands-on technical discipline? I think I would say that the approach that I have to these type of problems is that like these, you know, whenever there comes up like a, a legal problem um, or, you know, if, if somebody's debating a, um, a technology that has some kind of legal impact or something, these things always have uh, underlying foundation of something, just like the law, like the law just doesn't, doesn't just come from nowhere. It has a history and a background. If you want to understand a concept, that's where you go, right? You go back in the history and you see, okay, here's, here's where this came from. Here's what people were thinking. Here's how, how it's been interpreted over time. And the same thing is true for the computer science tools. Like if I was learning about, uh, you know, an IP address, I could go and research what is an IP address? Where did it come from? Why does it would work the way it works. And there's always reason, there's always like answers to those questions. And so if you are debating uh, a new topic like that, or you're researching a topic like that, I would suggest going to the foundation of whatever the technique or tool is, or whatever the law is, and trying to understand it there first, before you build up to the policy implications of it. Because the way that something works will inform those policy decisions and can be very um, insightful and, and allow you to, to really like see where, where things come from and where they can go based on that understanding. Sounds like a reverse engineering approach. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe I, it could be. I, I, and the, the other thing I guess I would say is that there are a lot of, um, I mean, 
there's a lot of information out there. Um, you just have to, to search for it. And for instance, a lot of like where I got started with computer science was with MOOCs. And I think if you're wanting a basic introduction to like, what is computer science? Like I took um, Harvard CS50X, right? That's just like a, an introductory to computer science course. And that course actually teaches a lot of very important things about computer science that like are, they're just very useful to know. Um, and if you're thinking that, you know, as a lawyer, maybe you're not going to need all of what that course might teach you. Um, I would bet that some aspects of that course are going to be intertwined into your you know, future legal career. Um, and probably will also teach you about how you can make things better or more efficient. Like I remember I was, um, taking that course and I was working at the attorney general's office, um, or the office of the, uh, general counsel, excuse me, in, um, university of, uh, Michigan, uh, at the time, right before I, uh, left Michigan. And they had this system that they were trying to keep track of, which it was a spreadsheet of which computing devices were on hold because there was some kind of investigation going on and which, you know, which were not. And when emails had to be sent, it was this big, complicated, like mess of a system. Um, and I remember thinking this is like perfect for computer science and we could use, uh, some like very basic code to organize this spreadsheet and like send automatic reminders when things needed to be, uh, like when emails needed to be sent out or, when certain expiration dates had come and passed and like we could manage this entire system with the tools that I was learning and CS 50 X. Um, and so like, there are a lot of opportunities to take what you learn and apply it, um, in very basic ways that end up being a lot more efficient than, uh, trying to do it all yourself. Yeah, that sounds like a very informative, uh, experience and, a great approach to, to the study of law um, is to, to keep expanding your learning beyond just what's, you know, strictly legal to other aspects of, of life, of society, uh, including, you know, technology and, and these more technical concepts. Yeah, that's actually one part that I think computer scientists are very good about is they like if you are tackling problems in computer science there's a lot of different like you know coding languages that are involved and there's this kind of mentality that you never really sit still in in the learning that you have like i'm working on a project right now and i was like the project started as i probably just javascript and then it also added html and then it added um, another type of web interaction called React. And then it also added like Python and R. And it just like it kept adding all of these languages that I kept having to use to work on the problem. Um, and I think that's something as lawyers that can be beneficial is to not, like I remember uh, working in law firms and they were still using um, like WordPerfect, uh, which is like a very old word processing software. Um, and so there's this like, Sure, I'm sure there's value to uh, keeping with traditional ways, but there can also be value to branching out and like learning new tools and techniques and applying those to what you're currently doing. Um, and I think that's something that computer scientists, I don't know if it's maybe out of necessity that they keep having to learn all these new tools. Like I didn't, I wasn't particularly excited about 
adding new languages to this project, but um, it was something that I had to do. And I think that's something that uh, legal mindset can benefit from. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm the producer, editor, and host of the show, and want to give a huge shout-out and thank you to our whole team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry for making this podcast come to life, especially Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator.